Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. Class Audio Podcast, Session 432. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 432 you're listening to. My guest today is mastering engineer Phil Feynman, based out of Los Angeles. He's worked with Guns N' Roses, Butch Vig, Flying Lotus, Weird Al Yankovic, and a list of many others. He also has a day gig because he's the product manager for AKG Microphones. We're going to talk all about his journey through audio and much more. Phil Feynman coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about staying organized. So my day typically starts at 6 a.m. when I get out of bed get the kids ready for school, get them out the door, come back. And, you know, by that time, it's like 8.15, 8.30. And I have a list of things in my head I have to do, whether it's an Atmos mix, a stereo mix, or a master, or I've got to get this podcast together, or I've got an interview for this podcast. Keeping track of all that really can get a little overwhelming. And so, you know, I'll walk in the door, and the first thing I do after dropping the kids off is I think, you know, what am I going to do first? And sometimes my interest about what I want to do, what I feel like doing, like I might come in the door thinking, oh, I really want to work on this stereo mix, but I've got an Atmos mix that I need to complete. And the client's going to be here tomorrow or the podcast is due and I really need to get it you know, finished. So in order to keep myself aligned to getting this stuff done and not just you know jumping to the next thing that my brain is interested in at the moment, uh, I use some tools to make sure that all that stuff stays straight. And I'm going to share some of those tools with you. Uh, for the podcast, it's really simple. We just use Google Sheets because, you know, you have the tabs for the different um, spreadsheets that you have. So we have like, you know, starting in 2014, we have we have podcasts going all the way back to then. So every tab has... Like, for example, the 2023 tab I'm staring at right now has the episode number, the guest name, the interview date, the file folder name, the date of release. Anne Marie's got some notes that she drops in there. I've got some notes that I drop in there. But it really kind of helps us keep track of where things are at. You know, everything in green is out. Everything in orange is in progress. If I didn't have that, and I didn't have it years ago, it became very chaotic and sometimes when you don't stay organized like this, the chaos tends to take over and you make mistakes and it just doesn't work out as well. Also, what's important for me is to stay ahead with the podcast because, you know, I'm going to go to NAMM, you know, the second week in April and I'm going to be gone for most of the week. Instead of coming back from NAMM and being in a panic, like, oh my gosh, we need to put together a podcast for you all. I'll do it ahead of time. I know because I, I've talked about the, the importance of the calendar. I know because I've got my calendar that I adhere to religiously. And then I've got, you know, the spreadsheet for the podcast. Those things coincide. So I, I'm aware of what's going on and when things need to happen. So at the very simple free level, look into, you know, doing a Google Sheet 
or if you have, you know, Excel from Microsoft, whatever, whatever floats your boat on spreadsheets. I happen to use this because I can get at it really easily from everywhere. And it's, it's just helped me tremendously. Now, you could also use this for audio work. I mean, very easy to put any kind of data into a spreadsheet, clearly. I think we all know that. But there is something that I do use, and I guess it's kind of, uh, you know, you've heard of CRMs, Customer Relation Management Software. I, 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 think that's, I think that's the correct acronym. There is a thing that I use called Asana. They don't sponsor the show. I'm just going to tell you about it anyway. And I actually use the free version. It's... I don't know how else to explain it, except that it's, uh, there's a term uh, called a Kanban board. So I don't know where that term comes from, but it's the term that I was taught. Essentially what it is, it's I've got this thing in front of me. I'm looking at it right now. I've got, a, it's like a board with little blocks and the blocks have information in them and you can move the blocks around to different columns. So I've got a quotes column, a to-do, in progress, complete, build, and paid. And each of those blocks I can shift around. So, you know, if I've got a mix here, that's let's say I've got a stereo mix or an Atmos mix, and I, I can see the client, I, what the project or the song is, the amount of money involved, and where I'm at with it. And then, you know, when, I, when we're done and the client is signed off, it goes to the complete column. And then from there, it's gonna go to the build column. And then once I get paid, it goes to the paid column. So then I can just visually kind of keep track of everything. Asana is free, although there are paid levels of it. I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode and you can check it out. I find it really easy to use. You can, you can also do it as a list or a calendar. Uh, so you'll just have to explore it to see if it floats your boat. I find it really helps me tremendously with keeping track of all my audio now, of course, there is the physical that uh, some of you may adhere to, you know, like a, a big calendar you could just draw on or write on. Uh, dry erase boards, of course, very helpful. Of course, at the end of the day, just having a system, it doesn't really matter what system it is, as long as it works for you, that's key. So if you're currently kind of operating in a mindset of, you know, oh, it's all up here, you know, I'm pointing to my head, that might get you into trouble. Uh, because if you have any kind of craziness in your life, and I don't know about you all, but there's always craziness going on in some capacity in, in my world. So I've got to keep track of a lot of stuff. And so when it comes to the business end of things for audio and for the podcast, I need to have something to just keep things organized so I know where I'm at at all times. And, you know, this also goes into the money thing too. And I'll add the, the QuickBooks uh, uh, self-employed, I think that's what it's called, the QuickBooks self-employed software that I have been using for years. I'll put a link in the show notes for that. That's an affiliate link, so I think I get a little kickback if you buy it just for full transparency. But that software is really great because you get in, you get your bank accounts in there. It automatically populates QuickBooks with that information. The key thing for me is the ability to send out profit and loss statements and income and expense reports to our tax person so that they know where I'm at, what's going on, and they can give us an accurate prediction about what our taxes are going to be. And, you know, like any kind of data that you're collecting, it just lets you know where you're at. And that's that's kind of the, the point of all of this, whether it's 
you know, tracking a podcast or audio work or money, the idea is just to keep track, to see where you're at so you can make better informed decisions about what it is you're doing. So if you have some tool that you think is super cool, I would love to hear about it. Just email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Share with me what you're using because I love hearing about new tools to do this stuff. And honestly, at the end of the day, if you're kind of overwhelmed by everything I'm talking about, which I can't imagine you would be, it's not that hard. It's just really like picking some tool and using it. And I think it starts at the calendar. The calendar for me is where everything goes, period. And I've got a, a Google, I'm a very Google-centric person. So I've got a Google Home here in the studio. So anytime I have a, a new event pop up, I'll automatically just, you know, ask the Google over here to add something to the calendar so I don't forget. And that could be anything from, you know, something for the kids or uh, or a meetup or, you know, a phone call or whatever. Everything goes into the calendar at the end of the day. And then everything that I've learned from there breaks out into, you know, QuickBooks and Asana and the spreadsheet and all that business. So that's about it. I think, you know, there's nothing here I haven't told you that you don't know about. It's just a matter of putting it into practice. So yeah, if you want to get a little more organized, try some of these tools and uh, link will be in the show notes for all of it. So I hope that helps. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. 
As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Phil Feynman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, nice to be here. Where did you grow up? So I grew up on Long Island in a town called Huntington, which is it's a decent-sized town, about 50 minutes from New York City by train, right? So 50 minutes, mm-hmm. you're in Penn Station. It feels, when you're on Long Island, like a, a world away, kind of, from Manhattan, yeah, grew up there. Classic suburbs, I guess you could say. Yeah. Brothers, sisters? I have one sister. She is a trauma surgeon in Baltimore. Very exciting stuff. And she's about four years older than me. So we had very different paths. My parents were really supportive of both, which, is, which was nice. As long as we're passionate about what we were doing, that was fine. And when we talk about paths in, in your younger years growing up, was that banned or... Did you even get into a musical instrument? Yeah, yeah, I definitely did. I was a drummer when I was younger. In uh, middle school and high school, I played the euphonium, which is like a smaller tuba. Mm -hmm. You know, I've just always been really into music. My parents, not so much. And my sister also, not so much. I honestly couldn't tell you where it came from. But I've just always kind of had a passion for music. Started playing in bands. My parents were nice enough to give me like drum lessons when I was younger. I was banging around on everything and they decided to give me some formal training. And so I did that for a while. And when I was about 14, I got a job working at like a local music store. This was, I guess at the time I wasn't even, it wasn't even for money. I was just trading for gear, right? Mm. I was super, I was really young. My mom actually owned her own business. She owned a candy store. And next to the candy store, there was a music store, sold instruments and stuff, had music lessons and all that. And they're called Murphy's Music and had been around for, oh gosh, close to 20 years at the time I started working there and it's still there. And so I started working there at 14, worked there through high school, loved it. Originally was like working for gear. I think one of the first things I ended up getting was like a Korg D1600, like a little digital music recorder. Mm-hmm. And that set me on a path to pro audio, as you could say, just re- recording and, and things like that. What did your dad do? My dad was an accountant, also had his own business. So entrepreneurial family, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So he had a home office, work from home. Probably before working from home was really a thing. Way before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he had been doing that forever. He had a partnership with a friend of his for a while, and then they kind of went their separate ways. And he was an accountant for mostly individuals, some businesses. I think he was doing every IHOP in New York and New Jersey at one point. He was the accountant for. Yeah. Did your parents' entrepreneurial leanings influence you at all? Yes, a lot. I always kind of knew I wanted to own my own business at one point, And business talk was kind of at the forefront of 
dinner conversations. So it was always in my head that that was a possibility and a path that I could take, which I'm really fortunate about because most people don't don't consider it or it's scary to them. But I really, from a young age, understood that a lot of it is a labor of love. Owning a small business is not always the most lucrative, but it has other perks. And so mm-hmm. it was something I really wanted to do at some point in my life to experience that. Growing up, was there competition between you and your sister? Not at all. No, we were we were in totally different worlds, right? So luckily, we both from a very young age knew at least what general direction we wanted to go in. She was always interested in medicine, even from a young age. I mean, there's pictures of us as like kids where she's got a stethoscope on my chest and stuff. I was like a baby. And I knew pretty early on that I wanted to work in music. Not sure what. Mm-hmm. Most people, they don't know exactly what they want to do. Until I had been in a recording studio, it's hard to envision even what that's like. But I knew I wanted to work in music. And even now, like the music world is so fascinating to me. I do several things, right, that we'll get into in music. And I always want to do more. There's always like other things. I think, oh, that's that's cool. That's you know? fascinating. Let's dabble in that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just there's just so much. And obviously, I have the things I feel like I'm good at. And so I gravitate towards those the most. But it's always it's always interesting to see what people are doing and how people make a living in music. As a drummer, did you have visions of being a rock star of any? Not really. I mean, you know, I played in bands in high school and stuff. Uh, I played in a punk rock band, which I know is a common theme as you've interviewed like almost everyone at Infrasonic, right? Like everyone, everyone at Infrasonic comes from a punk rock background, or at least a lot of us do. But I also like in high school at the same time playing in a punk band, I had a jazz quartet with a few friends and we'd play gigs for money, like on the side, we'd play wedding receptions or whatever, just to just to make some money. And it was a great money, actually, as a high school kid. Oh, yeah. Did your time at the music store working there, was that your introduction to the world of recording? Yeah, I mean, I guess like lightly. Murphy's really sells more instruments, less than the pro audio world. I guess my first experience really recording, other than getting that Korg and trying to record my friends and stuff in my parents' basement, was going to a recording studio. My band had decided we wanted to record an EP and we had scraped together enough money and went to a recording studio on Long Island. And that was really like my first time, like seeing a recording studio and hearing like from what we were playing to the final product and being like, oh, wow, I can't believe like how polished it is. Like it was so much better than anything I was doing in my house. And it fascinated me. So kind of got sucked into that. And as I got thinking about going to college and stuff, I was deciding like, what do I want to do? Do I want to play drums for a living? That was a consideration. Do I want to audition for some schools and just try and do that? Or do I want to go for recording? And I ended up going to the University of Hartford for audio engineering technology, which was kind of a mix of recording and electronics. It was heavy on electronics. I was always into computers and stuff. I thought, oh, this this could be fun. Not fully thinking through the fact that electronics and getting into like the component level electronics is a lot different than messing around with a computer. Mm-hmm. But I found myself actually really good at it and I loved it. And so I ended up with a degree in that. And while I was there, I started working for Telefunken, which is in Connecticut as well, and ended up designing some stuff for them while I was in college, which was Kind of crazy, and I guess at the time you don't really realize 
oh, this is kind of a big deal. I'm making stuff for Telefunken. I'm 20 years old. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. I love my time there. I love everyone there. They're some of the best people on the planet. It was fun. Wow. So how long did that last? I was at Telefunken for, let's see, I must have started there in 2005 and I left by 2009. Okay. I really only left because, I mean, I loved Telefunken. I didn't love Connecticut, especially Hartford. It's not my favorite city in the world. No disrespect to my friends that live there, but I was 21. What about it? I mean, I haven't spent any time there. I have no idea. Tell me more. At the time I was living there, it was a fairly dangerous city. Really dangerous city? Quite, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Connecticut, Connecticut's a funny state because people really think about it as a wealthy state, yeah. which it is. Most of that is in the suburbs, though. The cities, Bridgeport and Hartford and Waterbury are all a, a little dicey. Things have probably changed now. I haven't, haven't been there in quite a while, but at the time I was there, it was not really a place I wanted to really put my roots down and spend forever in. In crime statistics, like like those are cities that never seem to really catch my attention or be on the radar. It's always like, you know, Detroit. Oh, yeah. No, it was uh, when I was there. I mean, like one of my roommates got drive-by shot in the face by accident with a pellet gun or whatever, but he got some metal lodged in his face. And at one point there was like a curfew where you couldn't leave your house after 9 or 10 p.m. Wow. Yeah, it was the, there was a Burger King around the corner for me that was selling heroin out of the drive-thru. It was definitely like... You know, I was 21 and I was like, I don't want to spend my 20s here. You right, know what I mean? Right. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> Fascinating. So you left. Where did you go to? So I left and I moved to Los Angeles and I've been here ever since. Yeah, I really took a chance. I came here really for the music scene, right? I was like, there's a lot of studios out there. I'll figure it out. I moved out. I stayed in a hotel for a few days and I found a place on Craigslist and that was it. Rented the place, and I've been in LA ever since. I started initially working at East West Studios briefly. I was working in their tech department under Gary Meyerberg, and met a bunch of other people. It's like they kind of just reopened. Cello had closed, and then Doug Rogers opened up East West, and they were using it for a lot of string sessions and stuff. I heard Will Ansbacher. I was talking about it too because I know he's another East Wester. There's a lot of us out there. Oh yeah, you and Will know each other. Oh, yeah. Definitely know Will. He had a room at Bedrock for a while. And I know a lot of your guests, actually. A lot of your LA-based guests. It's a small, you know, oh, yeah, it yeah. seems like a big community, but it's it's, it's not not, not no. so big. So I uh, worked at East West for, I don't know, six months, just repairing stuff for them. And pay wasn't great. I was like the second tech at East West. So, I mean, it's not, not a super lucrative position. So I decided at that point that I wanted to open up my own repair shop. Looked around for a little while, and there was a place in Echo Park that had just opened that was like trying to be kind of a recording facility. It seemed interesting. I saw that they had a grand opening. So I went there, talked to some of the guys there, and I was like, hey, you guys interested in hiring a tech? And they said, no, but if you want to open up your own shop, like we'd love to have you in the building. Hmm. It's a big 40,000 square foot building, mostly empty. There were a handful of like hourly rehearsal rooms in there and a recording studio in there and pretty much that was it i mean the, the rest of it was like mostly empty a couple of people had some lockouts but ended up opening up a shop in there and the person who was running it at the time ended up kind of defaulting on his rent and getting kicked out and so 
<laughs> so now I'm in this building with a few other people and we don't know what's going to happen, right? Are we going to get kicked out? What, what are we doing? And me and two of the other people decided, let's join forces and maybe talk to the landlord and see what we can work out. And we worked out a deal and took over the whole space, right? 40,000 square feet. That's a lot of space. A lot of space, yeah. And basically built what was Bedrock, which turned into 11 hourly rehearsal rooms, two recording studios, and then a little over 100 lockouts. Had my repair shop. We had a small retail store in there, a rental department. It was a whole thing. And yeah, built it up over over years. Was there for... 13 years. We just closed in the last year. And were you were you continuing to operate as a tech or did you did you run the studio and, and were you engineering? Yeah. So I was operating as a tech and then I would do some sessions here and there with friends or whatever. But we hired somebody to like run each department. So we had a guy who was our chief engineer running this guy, Eric Reniker. He was running the recording studio stuff. I would come in and mess around and things like that. But I was mostly just fixing gear for people. I became like a Fender certified technician. I was doing obviously a lot of stuff for Telefunken out here, repairing stuff. I ended up doing stuff for like Supro, a lot of guitar amps and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's just what people wanted fixed. I would generally fix anything, but a lot of our clients just guitar amps, guitar amps, guitar amps. So that's kind of what I was doing for a while. And it was fun. I had a good time. So with, I mean, God, that's a, so much space to handle. But <laughs> it seems like you you all did a great job of like, I mean, having rehearsal spaces, studio, tech, rental, very diversified group of businesses. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, individually, any of those businesses, it's tough. Right. Running a recording studio is, it's not easy. Running a rental business is not easy. Running a rehearsal business is, I mean, that was fairly consistent for us, but... Early days, also not easy, but you, you kind of put them together and they keep each other afloat. You'd see rehearsals get really busy and the studio would die. And then you would see rehearsals taper off and the studio would get really busy. Mm. And it would just kind of go with the seasons. Summertime is big touring time. So a lot of rehearsals for that stuff. Studio's not so busy. In the wintertime, studio gets pretty busy. People are around. And then we did well on retail too. I mean, we had a store that just sold sticks, strings, drum heads, guitar picks, cables, just stuff that people needed. Not really like instruments so much, but when you'd come in for your rehearsal, you'd walk in through the store to check in your rehearsal and people would be like, oh yeah, I need some strings or whatever. I think we had the second largest selection of strings in LA at one point. It was crazy. <laughs> That's a smart business move too, just to have that store there in place. Yeah, it was really great. It was really great. And the rehearsals were always busy. We tried to keep pricing affordable. It was not the biggest moneymaker for any of us involved, but it was worth it. We were trying to really just serve the community. And my partners and I, we had this vision in, in mind where we just wanted to be kind of a communal space that people could afford to come to. You know, we had piano rooms and drum rooms that were $10 an hour. So... We tried to make it so anybody could come and really there were no barriers to get in and, and be able to, to create. So I have to ask, you went to school and you studied electronics essentially, right? Yeah. And at any point, did you just say, I love this, this is what I want to do? Or was it more like, 
this is a smart move. This is a, this is job security for the future. Like what, where was your head at with all of this? I loved it. I mean, my first like one or two electronics classes, it's hard when you're building up the foundations, I mean, of anything, right? And you're, you're building up those foundations and you're like, how does this apply? How does this work? I will say the University of Hartford did do a good job of, because it was kind of specifically geared towards audio. Mm -hmm. They did a pretty good job of letting us get into the audio portion pretty quickly. So you're learning AC and DC electronics, and then you're tearing apart an amp, and you're figuring out how tubes work, and you're biasing tape machines and getting into the electronics of all that stuff. I loved it right away, because it was really applying to what I loved. If I was just a regular... EE major. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I would have loved it as much as I as I did having it geared towards audio. So yeah, I kind of dove right into it and loved it. I was seemed to have a knack for it and I'm really stuck with it. I don't know how many people, honestly, that I went to school with really like stuck with that. I think a lot of them kind of went into other facets of audio mm -hmm. or other facets of electronics. So they're working in post or whatever else. But yeah, I stuck with the audio electronics for a long time. That's yeah, interesting. And, and I wonder if the culture that surrounds, if you're repairing an 1176 or a Super OAMP or whatever, it's the culture, it's the type of people that you're dealing with. I wonder if that plays a part. Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely does. I was careful to never really get pigeonholed. You know, there's guys in LA who it's like, oh, you need a studer fix, you go to him. Or this guy's a Vox repair guy or whatever it is. And I really tried to like not get pigeonholed into that stuff and just fix whatever needed to get fixed. And maybe I wasn't the fender guy or whatever, but you need a fender fix. Like, I'll fix it for you. Right. It's fine. A lot of techs are a bit, I don't know how to say this politely. They're a little weird, you know? Uh <laughs> Yeah, they are. And, and so I made a good living just being like responsive and normal. You needed something fixed. I call you back. I let you know the status of your repair. Yeah. I didn't like stuff sitting in my shop for six months, which I know is a common problem with some techs, right? It's just like it sits around. You know, it's, I don't know if this is true and I don't even know if I'm going to get this right. I'm going to take a shot here, but I remember being told a lot of the techs who are older at this point, 60s, 70s, 80s, who are really kind of strange and grumpy and easily sure. agitated. I heard the story that in the days of solder being made out of lead. Still is. Oh, okay. oh a lot of it. Okay. There, <laughs> there used to be something in solder that I guess maybe they stopped at some point or anyhow, something in the solder, they breathe that in and that would affect, I think it's called the hyperthalamus inside the brain. Oh, sure. Which would yeah. affect, I think, your ability to stay calm or something, you know, whatever. I know I'm not being very descriptive here, but that was what I had always heard. And I don't even know if that's true, but I definitely know some older texts that like, they're strange or grumpy or just... Yeah. Usually a mix of both. I yeah. mean, you, it usually is. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what that's all about. I mean, it's it's definitely possible that it's that. We have largely moved on to like silver solder now, so not so much lead these days. But I mean, definitely gets used. Lead lead solder is easier to work with uh -huh. than silver solder, so some people still prefer it, I guess. <laughs> so my ask is, audience, if you hear me telling this story, I'm not trying to spread disinformation. It's it's all hearsay. It's it could be complete bullshit. So don't don't quote me on any of this. But yeah, totally believable though. It's a theory I heard and I thought, wow, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> sure. 
So anyway, yeah, I, I was fixing a lot of stuff at the same time running the day-to-day operations at Bedrock, dealing with the staff and some of the clients and all that. We, we had grown, I think at our peak, we had a staff of about 12 people. So it was a pretty large operation, 108 rooms in the building, 12 people. It was quite a thing. Holy crap. And uh, yeah, it was, it was really fun. And the goal was really just to be kind of a community resource. Again, it wasn't about the money, really. I mean, we needed to make a living, but it was really about trying to provide something for the community that we didn't think really existed. What caused you to walk away from that? So we closed basically, man, our landlords uh, never really uh, kept the building. And so they were making a lot of money off of us over the years. I don't know, whatever they made over the 13 years, $10 million off of us. They hardly put money into the building. And eventually there was a crack in one of the uh, joists in the roof. It cracked and building was unsafe. So the landlord said, everyone needs to leave. And so everyone moved out. They told us it would be a three to six month process to fix the building and they'd get us back in there. And after six months, they told us, you know what? We're not going to fix this. Get out of here. (laughs) And that was it. And so we closed. Wow. It was really, really sad. You would have still been there, right? Had they fixed it. I would have done that job for the rest of my life, for sure. It was great. Yeah. So panic ensues, I'm sure. Yeah. So it was a whole mess. So we had to let everyone know, look, hey, the building's getting repaired. Everyone's got to leave. Got to take your gear with you. I don't know if during the construction, there's going to be walls knocked out or things are going to look different. I can't promise you your room back when you move in, but we'll do the best we can when things are fixed. So everyone leaves. I talked to the landlord. I said, look, I have so much stuff in this building. We had a couple of recording studios. I had an entire rental department. I was like, look, I know everyone's getting their stuff out. Can I leave my stuff in here? And kind of as the construction goes on, I'll be around. I'll help out. And if stuff needs to get moved, I kept my staff higher. You know, I didn't fire them because I was like three to six months. We'll just eat it. It was a lot of money, but I was like, we'll just eat it. And then when we reopen, like everyone can just get back to work and it's fine. I was really concerned with taking care of my staff. So landlord says, fine, keep your stuff in there. And then they just weren't really doing any work. We hired our own structural engineer to like take a look and sniff it out. And we had a quote for like a hundred grand to fix it. And we take it to the landlords. We're like, look, a hundred grand to fix it. It's like less than two months worth of rent. Yeah. And they look at it and they're like, yeah, no, we're not going to do it. And so I wish I could tell you why that place doesn't exist anymore. Other than the fact that obviously they just didn't want us in there. You know, I, I've, if I had to guess, they're going to turn it into condos or whatever. Oh yeah. That doesn't surprise me that they pulled that. It was like, Here's an opportunity to completely get these people out of here, sell at the, you know, at when was this? This was, I mean, so we really announced our closure at the end of 2022, but we knew for a while that we weren't going to reopen. You know, we ended up getting lawyers involved. It was a whole thing. And so until we finished that process out, we didn't really announce to everybody that we were closing. So in December, we basically said, we're not reopening. Yeah. Well, I would say if the economy was booming and it was the height of the market, that would make a lot of sense. But that doesn't make a lot of sense right now. It's like, hey, you've got a building full of renters. Why don't you hold on to them? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think they bought that building for not a whole lot of money a while ago. It's worth significantly more now. And if they want to cash out, then that's what they're going to do, I suppose. We even tried to work it out. You know, we're like, if you're going to build condos, 
A, just be open with us about it. Just give us some communication. If you're going to build condos, it's going to take a couple of years to get the approvals done. You know, the city of Los Angeles is pretty slow with that stuff. Just let us operate in the meantime. You'll make money, we'll make money, and then we can kind of transition out in a more appropriate way. Yeah. But they really just weren't willing. Hmm. So that was that. And in the meantime, you know, while we were closed and it was looking like we weren't reopening, I had started working at Infrasonic and then... Uh, a little bit after that, started at AKG. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Well, okay, so bridge this gap for me. How do you go from doing that to working at Infrasonic? So I've known Pete for Pete Lyman for, for a very long time. Pete actually had a room at Bedrock, like many people in Los Angeles. Okay, okay. A lot of Pete's like earlier stuff when he was working on like Best Coast and stuff like that, like those are all records that were made at Bedrock. Okay. And then they were going to Pete for mastering. And then his band, Barrio Tiger, had a room literally right next to my shop. So I've known Pete forever. And with all this stuff going on at Bedrock, I'm trying to think, what do I want to do with my life? What is going on? And I had thought about mastering. I'd spent a long time doing a lot of critical listening, both with repairs, but also a lot with working at Telefunken and stuff like that. I spent, I can't even tell you how many hours changing an output cap and listening and then changing it again and then listening and then, changing, you know, and like changing different values, different materials, different, all this stuff. So I had a pretty good ear developed for critical listening and thought mastering might be a good fit for me. And at this point, Pete's in Nashville, obviously he'd been in Nashville for a while and he was like, dude, fly out to Nashville and let's hang out and talk about it. So I go out there and hang out for a while. I learn a bunch from him. He's like, you know, if you want to do it, obviously, you know, you got to get your own clients and stuff, which is totally fine. I know a lot of people just kind of partnered up with them that way. And it's been honestly an awesome transition for me, just because, like I said, the ear part, I already had pretty well developed and I know my way around what plugins are out there and things like that. I had a little bit of a learning curve on WaveLab, but 
once I'm up and going with that, making critical decisions, listening in the studio comes somewhat naturally to me at this point. So that critical listening in the days of doing tech work, really, you feel have paid off? Big time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the minute things you're listening for when developing microphones and things like that are very similar to the minute things you're listening to in mastering. Okay, so you fly out to Nashville, you and Pete talk, you figure this out. Do you come up with a game plan of coming back to Los Angeles and working out of Infrasonic LA? Yeah, so it it actually worked out great because the way that everything's kind of scheduled in the studio, it's all project-based. So basically... If you have less projects, you're in the studio less. It's not like, oh, I'm in this day and Dave Gardner's in this other day and Nick Townsend's in this other day. It's basically just like, okay, let's look at the scope of work everyone has and let's schedule it all out in the, in the studio. And you go in at your assigned time to take care of an assigned project. And Raylan does all of that. She's amazing at it. Oh, yeah. It really works out nicely. And again, like in addition to knowing Pete forever, I've known Nick and Dave for a very long time too. You know, I met Dave right when he moved out to LA. I used to fix gear for these guys and they know me well and were stoked to have me. So it was like a really great, it was just a really great landing place for me coming out of the mess of the end of Bedrock. Well, okay, so let's examine that for a second. So Bedrock has all this gear. What happened to all that? We sold almost all of it. I mean, we took what we wanted, me and my partners, and then we... Sold most of it. We had some studio stuff. By and large, most of it was like amps, PA speakers, staging, stuff like that. Not so much mastering studio stuff. Right. It wasn't a huge help with Infrasonic, but we did sell all of that off. And honestly, like needed to because in the time we were shut down, we paid our employees for months and months expecting to reopen and burned a lot of cash. So yeah. it helped recoup a... Small fraction of that. <laughs> so then you're going to do the mastering thing, but I'm sure the writing was on the wall. You probably thought, well, okay, this is going to take a little while to ramp up here in terms of client base, getting a consistent income. Los Angeles is not exactly known for its affordability. Yes. Where does this AKG thing come into play? So funny enough, the AKG thing, it was just an opportunity that I was lucky enough to be told about. And then I just was like, oh, let's see what's up and ended up getting the job. But basically this guy, Dylan Wall, who's our lathe tech over at Infrasonic, right? So he works on Nick's lathe. He also works at Harman and he's an engineer on the luxury audio side, making products for like Mark Levinson and things like that. There was one night he was over working on the lathe and he said, Phil, are you interested in working on microphones again ever? And I was like, uh, depends maybe. And he's like, they're looking for somebody to head up AKG on the microphone side. Hmm. And he sent me the job listing. I looked through it and I said, you know what? This could be cool. And so I applied for the job and and I got it. You know, the microphone world, there's not a ton of qualified people who really know a lot about microphones that are just like in the applicant pool for things like this. A lot of people who know a lot about microphones are recording engineers and stuff like that. They're not really interested in running a microphone company. But for me, it was great because I already had the business sense from running my own business and the managerial portion of things down. You know, I was obviously in charge of a bunch of people and had the background in, in making microphones. So it was just like, couldn't have been a better fit. And so I've been there for about seven months now. Okay. And so for the listener and Phil, correct me if I'm wrong, Samsung owns Harman. Harman owns AKG and happens to own the Lexicon name, the DBX name, 
Am I BSS, missing it? JBL. JBL, all right, right. Crown. And then I think that's most of it on the pro side. Okay. A lot of other stuff, but yes, yes. So day-to-day, what is your job at AKG? I'm the product manager for microphones. So it involves two different studies. One of them is the development side of things. So there's developing new product, coming up with ideas, working with the engineers to make cosmetic samples at first, and then all the way out to the final product. And then there's also the product management side of things, which is working on anything from with the marketing people to like what kind of promo pricing is going on to global supply chain stuff to all of it. Yeah. You kind of own that whole business. Everything about that business is running through you. And it is, it's a lot, but it's really cool to be part of a system that that's so big and established. It's very different than Telefunken. Yeah. Well, that's got to be tough though. I mean, you know, you have kind of been independent guy for a long time. hundred percent. And that going to a big corporation like that is probably quite a culture change. It is a culture change. I will say that everyone I work with is really cool. Like they're really generous about work-life balance. They're really passionate about what they do and they really respect everyone for what they're hired for. Right. They hired me for microphones and my ideas on microphones and how I think the business end of that should be run. And they're very receptive to hearing that out. I mean, they have their own processes and things you have to learn, but a lot of that stuff is great stuff to learn anyway. I mean, Harmon's been making products since before I was ever born. You know what I mean? (laughs) So like they have a huge machine and a system that works for them and there's nothing wrong with having to work within their system, but they do give you kind of the freedom to explore within that. So it's been actually a pretty nice change. I was worried about that at at first and I've been pleasantly surprised. And I want to make clear because some people might say, oh, is this a, is this a plug for AKG? This is not actually. AKG does not sponsor this podcast, nor does Harmon or any of those brands. Sure. Yep. This is just a, a coincidence that you happen to work for these, these folks. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I just, I like making microphones. I happen to be able to do it for AKG currently, which for me is exciting. You know, Telefunken was great as well. Like these historic brands, all these historic brands, it's really cool to be able to have a hand in, in shaping them. It's crazy to me. And and it's kind of fun, AKG in particular for me, because, you know, AKG designed a lot of stuff for Telefunken back in the day. They designed the 251 and stuff like that. And so it's cool now to be there after being at Telefunken. You know, I really feel like I'm on this kind of cool journey that's very unique in the audio world. Well, let's talk about that for a sec, because you differ from other guests in that, well, you are a mastering engineer. So that's not that different, but the fact that you have traveled a bit of an entrepreneurial path as a tech primarily is a little different. And I think it opens up some possibilities for those listening, thinking, Hey, you know, I know how to do that. Or I am, I have an aptitude for that, or I'm thinking about going to school for that. So in the world of pro audio, this is a total path. And I don't know if I certainly don't have the brain to do what you do at all. So it's not a path for me, but for others, it might be, if you have the right kind of uh, sensibility, it might be a good thing to do. But it's also interesting too that, you know, whether you're doing it for a corporation or not, you're making, working on microphones, 
but you're also a mastering engineer. You kind of have a hand in a couple different pies there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think like in general, my philosophy with all this stuff, whether it's tech work or designing products or mastering or bedrock or any of this stuff, all, all I want to do is to try and like facilitate creativity. So I'm just trying to make creativity a bit easier for people and help people realize whatever their creative dream is. That's kind of what I feel like my purpose is in general. Mm -hmm. And however that plays out, can play out quite a number of different ways, is fun for me. Yeah. Well, as far as microphones are concerned, I mean, since I've got you here, I want to ask you, mm -hmm. is microphone technology really changing or is it essentially kind of the same thing that it's been for a while? Although with the caveat that I'm well aware that AKG makes the D12 VR where you can apply phantom power and then there's like the, some colored buttons on there. I have used that yep. mic. Yeah, it's a cool mic. Yeah, but I mean, like other than circuit tone shaping, things like that, is there anything that's going on that you can hip people to, not proprietary things, but I mean, just like overall technology that we may not be aware of? There is some stuff. There's like MEMS microphones, which is like kind of a different capsule type that's becoming more popular. A lot of times like kind of on headset stuff. So you get a clearer, you know, right now I'm on earbuds or whatever. And, and MEMS microphone would have a kind of a, a better bandwidth. You'd be able to hear a little bit more clearly. Right. So really tiny stuff. There's some advancements in that stuff. You see a lot of like modeling stuff now. Companies coming out with a microphone, whether it's Slate or Universal Audio or whatever, and they come out with a, a microphone and then you can kind of like choose what you want it to sound like. But yeah, there's definitely places to innovate in it. It's tough in manufacturing microphones. And I've, I've just found this in general, that when you come out with a product, regardless of how innovative it is, everyone wants to know what it sounds like that they are already from, you know, does it sound like a U47? Right. Does it sound like a U67? Does it sound like whatever? And I guess it's just because that's what you know. You always want to just reference it against something you know. But it makes it hard sometimes when you're trying to make new stuff that's innovative. And it's so drilled into everybody in the audio industry. The, the classics, the classics, they're the best. They're unbeatable. It's, you know, I, I'm not saying they're not incredible microphones. And, and they are in some ways hard to beat. But it just gets difficult to try and break through that and get people excited. You make a, a quote-unquote new classic. Right. And just so... You know, because the audience is going to hear the microphone you're talking into. They're not hearing what I'm hearing right now over your your headset. I don't want anybody sure. to be confused and be like, "What headset is that?" Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's true. Yes, <laughs> I am. I am talking through an AKG C six thirty six right now. <laughs> For those and I thought scoring. a lot about what I was like. Oh, this is a microphone. We're going to be talking about microphones. What do I want to put up? I almost brought my AEA ribbon microphone out. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I was like, I don't know what to do. It's funny, people. When they come on the show, a lot of people will be like, yeah, I pulled out my Klaus Heine modded 67. And I'm just like, yeah, just, you could pull out a dynamic mic. It's really actually Whatever works fine. for you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, so let's just talk condenser mics for a sec. I mean, in terms of the way a diaphragm is, is constructed these days, has anything really changed since like the forties and the, or, or the fifties or, or the sixties? Also, like a lot of companies are still doing like the, I mean, AKG developed the CK12 capsule for the 251, the C12. And 
everyone's trying to chase that still. People are trying to make the perfect CK12 capsule. There are some companies that innovate that are doing square capsules. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll do multiple square capsules. So they'll try and blend them together to get a good frequency response, but also a faster transient response by having several small capsules. I've seen companies do like one large and one small, and like the small one will go up to like 50 kilohertz or something crazy. I mean, there's definitely there's definitely something there, right? As kind of recording quality keeps increasing, right now, 44.1 is the standard. In 10 years, will that still be the case? You know, as fidelity increases, from 4K TV to 8K TV or whatever, these little details are going to matter more and more. Mm -hmm. What your microphone sounds like doesn't matter when you're recording to wire, (laughs) you know? But now now it matters. And, And it should only matter further, honestly, as we keep getting higher def. People are going to hear the little imperfections more and more. And they're going to want something that sounds better or, you know, better subjective. So so beyond the capsule, is anything on the component level changing drastically? Is there any innovation there? A lot of it's materials and then just ideas for how these circuits work. There's companies out there that are doing proprietary chips, like just for audio. There's like that corporation, I don't know if you've heard oh, yeah, of them, yeah. THAT, for right? Sure. And all they do is IC chips that are specifically geared towards audio. And that's getting put into all kinds of things, microphones, consoles, whatever, right? To make a better product. And and those things end up having different or better specs geared towards audio. So there's definitely advancements coming along with that stuff. It's not as obvious or as fast as the new iPhone or whatever. Right, right. But certainly there's money being poured into these innovations and they slowly come out. I don't know if it's Austrian audio that it's like former AKG people. I think they're doing Correct, something yeah. that you can control with it. You can control the mic with an app. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So yeah, they have a, like a dongle thing that you can change the polar pattern or something with an app. Yeah. And obviously, you know, you mentioned the rectangular thing, Audio Technica yep. is doing that. And I guess I'm kind of, I feel like other than the basic concept of a microphone, Everything else around the the basic technology is is getting innovative, you know, like with the app or the the capsule. But nobody seems to be doing anything like, wow, that's going to change how people use microphones, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, how people generally use microphones. I mean, you you know, you put it at the source and you record. I, I don't know how much there is to innovate necessarily in that way, mm-hmm. but there's certainly on the product side, you know, whether you're doing some kind of immersive microphone, right? Some ambisonics thing or mm. or whatever. You know, there there's there's definitely plenty of room and especially, you know, as Atmos becomes more of a thing, right? You're an Atmos mixer, I believe. Yeah, yeah. That kind of recording is gonna become more and more valuable. So there's certainly places to innovate. At the end of the day, all we want to do is make a product that people have fun using. Right. Because that that's when people are most creative, when they're just having fun using something. So that's the focus. As we start to wrap up here, I'm curious now, with the background that you have and now your time in mastering, are you finding things in mastering or, or finding that world is like a whole new world of, of discovery for you and getting excited about? Whereas, you know, you've kind of been working on gear for kind of a long time now at this point. So Yeah, definitely. Yeah, working on mastering stuff I love it. I love the pace of it. I love, I just never really sold on mixing because I just 
didn't want to spend that much time on a track. Mm-hmm. It is, it's a lot. It's a commitment. Yeah. It really is. And so with mastering, it's just fun to, to be able to just work on a whole body of work to kind of wrap it up for people. And it's really fun. And, and I'm fortunate enough to work with guys like Nick and Dave and even Jay Clark. And, and these guys are super supportive and we've really built a, I guess what I would call like a creative safe space for us to, if we're working on projects, to be able to show each other and lean into each other a little bit on like what we're doing or what we think sounds good or doesn't. And it's just awesome. Like it's such a fun environment to be in. Wow. Well, it's great to have you on and and have you having taken a very different path than a lot of my traditional guests. And it's fascinating that, that that's an option. So for the younger listener, if you hear this and you think, well, I don't know, you know, mixing or mastering or recording, or that may not be my thing, but being a tech and being involved in pro audio on the, on the technical side, that's an option. It definitely is. Yeah. We, we need more people helping to develop gear for sure. Develop gear and fix gear. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, you get to, you still get to work in studios, you know? I mean, it's a, it's a benefit to work in a studio and develop gear, right? How do you know what people want unless you're actively involved? Yeah. Well, this is great. Thank you, Phil. I appreciate the time you've made for me. And I'll include a link in the show notes to your profile on the uh, Infrasonic website. I don't know why I just happened to interview so many people from Infrasonic. (laughs) Because there's so many of us. I mean, I guess. There's, what is there, eight of us? Something like that. Yeah. Well, it's great to add you to the Infrasonic uh, Working Class Audio Collection. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. All right. You take care. Yeah, you too. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP-UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Bill Feynman here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Want to, of course, remind you to head on over to your podcast aggregator. I know, don't I sound like a broken record? I do this like every show now. Anyways, you know what I'm asking. Head on over to your podcast aggregator and leave a five-star review. If you can write something up in praise of the show, that would be great. If you don't like the show, just don't tell anybody. Absolutely not. Yep. Well, that's it for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Ploin, the editing, Cliff Truesdale, and the Working Class Audio theme song. And of course, that badass voice that Chuck Smith provides us at the top of the show every time. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And feel free to send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear. 
including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 